This morning we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Last week I left you dangling rather precariously over a very difficult verse from the Apostle Paul, a statement that I've heard, well, I have to say I've heard it preached badly without any sort of depth of understanding what Paul was really getting at. So we're going to take the first portion of this morning and talk a little bit of angelology and demonology. Now, when we did our systematic theology series, which you can find on our website and on YouTube, we spent some time talking angelology and demonology. But we want to touch on a few of the vital points this morning, or else you simply cannot understand what Paul was driving at. There really is a biblical background, a biblical precedent for the things that Paul is saying here. So if you just go leaping in suddenly to chapter 5, verse 1, and read down to verse 5 especially, I have chosen to turn such a one over to Satan, then you can get really confused. So we're going to start this morning by trying to unconfuse all that stuff so that we have a biblical understanding of what Paul was driving at. So let's read the first five verses of chapter 5, and then we will talk about the background. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant, and have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though I'm absent in body, but present in spirit, I have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of of the Lord Jesus. That's a complex theological notion. Deliver such a person over to Satan in the hope that his soul would be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. So we're going to talk about that this morning. It's really the first place in the Corinthian letter where Paul brings up Satan and brings him up in sort of a haphazard fashion as if the people in Corinth are already familiar enough with his theology that he can just say that and then move on. Turn such a one over to Satan. And to understand that, we're going to have to look back into the Old Testament at the history of Satan himself. Now, a lot of people misunderstand the relationship of God and Satan. A lot of people seem to equalize or think that they are both commensurate with one another. They think that there is God and Satan. I heard a preacher one time say, God has voted, Satan has voted, now you cast the final vote. Which is completely wrong. 
The voting has already taken place. The only vote was God, and God elected. And that's the end of that voting. Amen. There is no equality between God and Satan. In fact, Satan is a created being, and I'm going to prove that to you this morning. He is a created being who ultimately serves God's purpose. So we're going to talk a little bit about why there's evil in the world. Uh, it's so frequent to hear people recite this phrase that you don't find anywhere in the Bible, but people say, why is it that bad things happen to good people? Well, they've got their theology all backwards. Here, I'll save you the trouble. According to the Bible, there are no good people. Amen. There's only sinful, depraved people. So the proper question would be, why do good things happen to bad people? So let's talk about Satan being created first and then talk about the purpose that he serves. Let's start in the Old Testament in the book of Ezekiel. Let's go look at Ezekiel 28, perhaps one of the most descriptive passages of how it is that Satan fell. Chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament actually contains two prophecies against the king of Tyre. Now, we've talked about Tyre and Sidon before. Tyre was an, a fortress that was built on an island. It's kind of out in the sea, and as a consequence, it was virtually impregnable until Alexander the Great came along and pretty much raised Sidon to the ground and then threw it into the ocean. And over the course of many years, all the rocks that were once the city of Sidon ended up building a causeway out to the island of Tyre. And Alexander and his armies completely conquered Tyre. In fact, the predictions of what would happen to Tyre included that eventually it would just be a set of rocks where fishermen were going to dry their nets. And once upon a time, it was a mighty fortress, a mighty kingdom. And so God is predicting, God is prophesying bad things for the king of Tyre. And the first prophecy here is directed right at the king of Tyre. And it should sound really familiar to any of you who are here on Wednesday night because it's God expressing his dismay with the king of Tyre because of the king of Tyre's ego which is exactly what we saw on Wednesday night in Isaiah 10 when God used the Assyrians to come and punish Israel and then God punished the Assyrians for the haughtiness with which they attacked Israel. So God used them and then judged them for how they were used. And that's the God of the Bible, a God who is absolutely sovereign and can do anything he wants with anybody he wants, as many times as he wants, any way that he wants, anywhere that he wants. God is always in control, and that even includes Satan. Satan is a created being who is part of God's created order. Get this right, Satan serves a purpose. As we're going to see here in Ezekiel 28... Satan fell as a result of his egocentricity, his determination that he was going to be like God. And when he fell, God could have immediately put him into the abyss. You go to the book of Revelation, 
And you read that God is going to put him in the abyss for a thousand years and then loose him for a short time and then throw him into the lake of fire, which is described as prepared for the devil and his angels. So we know that God can do it. We know that God can punish Satan. And then Satan falls and God does not put him in the abyss. Why not? Instead, Satan turns up in the Garden of Eden. Why? Or even bigger question, why was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden to start with? Because God had to give people something to tempt them with. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there, and Satan was in the garden talking to Eve. Why? Because this all fit God's plan. Nothing that happens in God's universe is accidental. Nothing that happens in God's universe was a surprise to him. When Satan fell, God did not go, oh no, what's happening to my universe? Satan fell because it served God's purpose. Now, let me see if I can turn one more theological idea for you here. There's a great deal of conversation about God's sovereignty versus the fact that there is sin in the world. The question usually goes, if God is all sovereign and God is all good, then why is there evil? He hasn't gotten rid of it yet. We know from the book of Revelation, when New Jerusalem comes down, he's going to get rid of it. He can get rid of it. He just hasn't yet, which makes people say, well, then God is the author of evil. Because even in Isaiah, God takes the time to say, I form the light and I form the darkness. I form the good things and I form the word is raw in Hebrew. I form the trouble, the dismay. It's translated evil in the King James. And so, so people say, well, then God is the author of evil. I disagree on a very theological basis that God is the author of evil, if by author you mean that evil emanates from him, that he himself retains some capacity to do evil. Instead, he ordains that evil would exist, and that's why there's Satan. Satan accomplishes the evil that serves God's purpose. For instance, God intended that human beings were going to fall. So God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden and then introduces Satan to the garden. Now, who caused the fall? Satan caused the fall, but God foreordained it. Is that too big a concept? Is that too difficult for us? Because once you get that God is sovereign over everything that happens in his universe, not only will that cause you to have a greater sense of worship toward him, but you'll have a greater sense of comfort in the fact that he's looking out for you. Tom and I come out of a church in Los Angeles where we were taught that Satan was behind every bush. Everything that went wrong, well, that's Satan, that's the devil. The preacher actually told us that if Satan couldn't get to him, he'd get to the people closest to him. So Tom and I were always walking around going, can't let Satan get me. If we ever woke up at three in the morning, we had been taught that that was the opposite of three in the afternoon when Jesus died. If you woke up at three in the morning, that was the devil shaking you awake. 
Oh, I went through a couple-week period where I would wake up at 3 in the morning and think, oh, no, I'm a goner. <laughs> I kind of like the old Puritan who wrote, I woke up one night and Satan was standing at the foot of my bed, so I turned over and went back to sleep. Because if we know that God is in control of Satan, well, then we can have confidence that he can protect us from Satan. So let's talk about the fall of Satan. Verse 20, or chapter 28 of the book of Ezekiel, like I said, the first prophecy is to the actual king of Tyre. But starting at verse 12, it says, Son of man, a reference to Ezekiel, take up another lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. And now the prophecy goes past the king of Tyre to the devil that's driving him. And so now he's talking directly to that demon who is Satan himself. And he says this, you had the seal of perfection. Full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, you were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, and the onyx, and the jasper, and the lapis lazuli, and the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold. The workmanship of your settings and your sockets was in you. On the day that you were created... They were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers. And I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day that you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. And by the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. And therefore, I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, in the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. And by the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. And therefore, I have brought fire out of the midst of you, and it has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will be no more. Now, you can't say that about any man. You can't say that about any human. I don't care how bad the human is. You cannot say, you were in Eden. There were only two people in Eden, Adam and Eve. The third entity in Eden was God walking in the cool of the day, and then there's Satan. And so this is obviously a prophecy of Satan. But it tells us two very, very important things. It tells us, number one, that he was created, which is said twice. You are a created being. And if he is a created being, then Satan does not have the same attributes as God. Satan is not omnipotent. Satan is not omniscient. He cannot read your mind. And Satan is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at once. 
And because he's a created being, he can only do what God allows him to do. We're going to see an example of that in just a moment. But think for a moment about the demoniac at the Gadarenes. The demoniac who had so many demons inside him that when Jesus said, what's your name? They said, we are legion because we are many. This poor fellow had so many demons in him that they were bragging that they were like a legion. So Jesus drives them out of the man, and they had to ask him permission to take pigs. Now, what does that tell you? Who's in charge here? God's in charge. Jesus is in charge. In fact, when the horde of demons known as legion saw Jesus coming, they actually got down in front of him and worshipped him and said to him, what have you to do with us? What are you doing here? They understood why they were on the planet. They did not understand why he was on the planet. And they actually asked him, have you come to cast us into the abyss before our time? Okay, well, they understand where they're headed. They understand who's going to put them there. And they understand that if Jesus has interrupted them, then they're in big, big trouble and they better do everything he says because he is the sovereign. He's in control and they simply are not. Turn to the book of Isaiah for a moment because the book of Isaiah does fill in a couple more gaps as to how and why Satan fell. Satan cannot do everything that God does. Satan is not as powerful as God. In fact, he's not even close to powerful as God because in this passage, we're going to read that Satan had a particular intention. He was going to set his throne in the place of the north and he was going to be worshipped like God. How did that work out for him? God instead cast him out of heaven. So let's read chapter 14 of Isaiah. And in this instance, we're talking about a taunt against the king of Babylon. This is Isaiah telling the king of Babylon what's going to befall him. And again, same thing as we saw in Ezekiel, Isaiah talks past the king and talks to Satan himself. So, starting at verse 4, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon, and you will say this, how the oppressor has ceased, and how fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of rulers, which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution the whole earth is at rest and quiet they break forth in shouts of joy even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying since you were laid low no tree cutter comes up against us Sheol you know what Sheol is that's the grave that's hell beneath Jesus spoke of Sheol as the place of the the waiting dead. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. Isn't that a scary phrase? Sheol, hell is looking forward to meeting you. That's just a frightening phrase. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead 
and all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones. They will all respond and say to you, even you have been made weak as we. You have become like us. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you and worms for your covering. Do you hear Jesus resonating there saying what hell's going to be like? He said it's the place where the fire's never quenched, where the worm never sleeps. So here's a description of, of Sheol, of hell beneath. You're going to have worms as your covering and maggots for your bed. And then look at verse 12. Suddenly Isaiah goes from speaking to the king of Babylon straight past him to Satan himself. And he says, how have you fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn? You have been cut down to earth. You have weakened the nations. By the way, I have to just say this real quickly. Notice the phrase, you have weakened the nations. What's the reason that the book of Revelation says God is going to put Satan in the abyss for a thousand years? Michael's going to put a seal over him and keep him down for a thousand years. Do you remember what the main reason is that he's going to be sent there? So that he won't have any more access to the nations. He won't be able to beguile and confuse the nations anymore. That's the reason that he's put in the abyss. So back here in Isaiah, it says, you are the one who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Here's how it works out. Verse 15, nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol. So that didn't go well. To the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They will ponder over you saying, is this the man who made the earth to tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a wilderness and overthrew its cities who did not allow his prisoners to go home. All the kings of the nations lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you have been cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch, clothed with the slain, who are pierced with the sword, who will go down to the stones of the pit like a trampled corpse. Okay, so he began by talking about the king of Babylon. He ended by talking about the king of Babylon. And suddenly right in the middle of that said... You thought you were going to ascend into heaven. You were the crowning cherub of God. You thought you were going to put your throne in the place of the north. So it's clear that this prophecy is moving past the king to the devil that drove him. Now, the whole point of reading those two passages, go back to 1 Corinthians. The whole point of reading those two passages was to show you that Satan is spoken of as being a created being. He is part of God's creation. God has power over him. God can send him into the earth and into Sheol at any point that he ceases to serve his purpose. Right now, he serves a purpose. 
right now he's bringing sin and death and disease and sickness and rebellion on the planet. But that is part of God's plan. God's ultimate plan, get this right, God's ultimate purpose is the glorification of himself and the glorification of his son. And so his son as redeemer, as savior, needed somebody to redeem and save. And so mankind was allowed to fall from their original, more pristine state. And the way that that was accomplished was through Satan. So God is not the author of evil. He is the sovereign over evil. And when evil comes about, it is his servant Satan who is accomplishing it. And all of that serves God's plan because ultimately God is going to not only cast him into the abyss, but put him into the lake of fire, just like Ezekiel said that he was going to have a flame set inside him and be burned to ashes. So God can do that. He can do that anytime he wants. He can, from the minute that Satan rebelled, he could have destroyed him right there. But he didn't. Because he has a plan. Now let's talk about this idea of turning someone over to Satan. Because the book of Job, perhaps the oldest book in the Old Testament, there is no mention of Israel in it, no mention of Moses, no mention of Abraham anywhere in it, no mention of well, there's a, there's a king from Jerusalem, but other than that, there's, there's none of the Old Testament theology that you read through the rest of the book. So it's argued that the book of Job is the oldest book in the Old Testament. And that book, the, the first, the oldest book talking about God and his relationship to Satan starts with God having a conversation with Satan about Job. And get this right. Job was not tortured by Satan because he was bad. He was turned over to Satan because he was good. And God was making sure that Job withstood Satan to the point where, where God said to Satan, okay, you can touch his stuff, but you can't touch him. Satan bragged. He said to God, if you allow me to to get to Job, who's upright and eschews evil. If you let me get at him, I'll make him curse you to your face. And so God says, okay, you can have his stuff, but don't touch him. And Satan not only touches his stuff, he destroys all his cattle. He kills all his children. He does everything that he can do to his stuff till Job's left with virtually nothing. And then Satan comes to God and says, skin for skin. A man will, will give anything for his skin. Let me touch his body and he'll curse you. And God says, okay, you can touch his body, but you can't kill him. What does that tell you? That tells you that God's in charge of how much Satan can do at any juncture. You can do this, but no more. When we're reading through the book of 2 Corinthians, when we get to 2 Corinthians, there's this marvelous phrase that I memorized years and years ago that says, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not tempt you beyond what you're able, 
but will with the temptation provide a way of escape so that you may be able to bear it. Do you know what that says? It says that God knows what your breaking point is. God knows how much he can allow Satan to do to you. He knows how much of your stuff can get hurt. He knows how much sickness, disease, your body, your skin. He knows, he knows how much, but he's not going to let you tempt, be tempted to the point of actually breaking, to the point where you would curse God. Now, I have often felt like I was at that point. I was, <laughs> you're laughing too hard. I, I have often felt like God had allowed me to reach that point where I was about ready to break. How many here have ever felt that? <laughs> That's a lot of hands. How many of you have ever felt like, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to get through this. How many is that? Okay, of all you who just raised your hands, how many died? None of you. Because you got through it. And the getting through it is the process of God teaching you to rely on him so that he will take you through these times of trouble and torment. Build your faith. He's going to take you through these times of woe and misery. And, and he's going to do it purposefully so that he can establish the relationship between you and him. The writer of Hebrews says, whom the Lord loves, he does chasten. And he scourges every son that he receives. I don't like that phrase. I like the phrase, whom God loves, he gives stuff. I like that one. He, every son he receives, he gives a big bear hug. Come here. Noogies for you, you scamp you. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he scourges every son that he receives. Okay, when we start putting this all together, what we see is God in his sovereignty, who is in charge, knows how to drive you to your knees and how to bring you back to himself. We see it all the way through the Old Testament. We see Israel time and time again. They don't rebel against God when they're in need, when they're hungry, when they are thirsty, when they need protection from their enemies. Then they're crying out to God. They're very conscious of God in their midst. But let them get fat and happy. Let them get comfortable. Let them have enough food and let them have protection from their enemies and the wild animals. And then what do they do? Every single time, check me on this one, every time when they get comfortable, they forget God every time. So what does God do? Bring the enemies, bring the animal. Now you're going to have a drought. Here it comes because he knows that's what's going to drive you to your knees. Be honest with yourself. When have you prayed more earnestly to God? When everything was great? When everything was fine? Bluebird of happiness on your shoulder? You got rainbows behind you all the time. Kumbaya, my Lord. I mean, is that when you're praying? No, you're praying your hardest when somebody you love is sick. You're praying your hardest when you don't know how you're going to make your bills. You're praying your hardest like our Congress did. They were praying nationally and publicly when planes hit buildings. Because that's the kind of thing that drives people to God and sincere and genuine prayer. But let us get comfortable. Let us get fat and happy. Everything's going good. The bills are all paid. I got a refrigerator full of food. I got a closet full of clothes. Everything's fine. You'll say, thanks, God. 
quick prayer. Love you, mean it. Here's a tip. Take care. Bye-bye. I'm doing fine. And he knows that's how you are. He knows that's exactly what you're like. So he will, again, get this right, out of love for you, he will drive you to your knees to bring you back to himself because he loves you that much. He won't leave you in that state of self-assurance, self-confidence, me first, I'm fine. He won't leave you there. He will bring you back to himself. And the method he uses time and time again is Satan, is a struggle, is trials, are problems. So do you see where Satan fits in the economy of God? In the big order of God, Satan is used by God to bring about trouble so that God himself is not the author of sin. Sin does not emanate from him. There is no part of him that is any less than holy and righteous and good. But he uses Satan in his sovereignty to accomplish the bad that is part of his plan. You got all that? If that weren't the fact, let's just test this. If that weren't the fact, then why is there Satan? God is all good. God is in charge. He is sovereign. Why does Satan even exist? Why hasn't God been done with him a long time ago? It's because he serves a function. But be clear about this, and this will bring you a great deal of comfort. Because he serves a purpose and a function, he can only do what God allows him to do. And he can't do more than that. When Jesus gave the model prayer, when he said, when you pray, pray like this, he included the phrase, deliver us from the evil. It's the word poneros. It's the evil one in some modern translations. Deliver us from Satan. Why would Jesus tell us to ask God to keep Satan away from us? We can't do anything about it. We need God to intervene. We need God to make sure that he is protecting us from the wiles of Satan. Why else is there a deliver us from evil? Do you understand that? So God is sovereign. God's in charge. God uses Satan to accomplish his will. Knowing what we know about Job and the way that Job was turned over to Satan... For the destruction of his body. But did God lose Job? No. In fact, at the end of the book, we hear that Job ended up getting back double everything he had. Double the houses, double the children. Who can withstand that? He was a pretty old guy. Now there's double the children. He had double the good that God had taken away from him, again, because God's in control. But get this principle right. The earliest book in the Bible tells us that even if God allows Satan to take your stuff, to take your skin in order to bring you back to him, even if God allows all that, turns you over to Satan, God is not losing you. God is simply refining you. You got it? You got the picture now? Though he slay me, I will serve him. Though he slay me, yet I will trust him. 
Okay, so now I think we begin to understand Paul's theology and his thinking, and remember that he did study at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a Pharisee. He's deeply entrenched in the scripture. He's familiar with everything I've just told you. He knows it better than any of us do. And so for him to use the phrase, I would turn such a one over to Satan for the destruction of his body so that God might save his soul in the day of Jesus Christ, that's perfectly in keeping with what we know from the Old Testament. This is not an arbitrary phrase. This is not something that Paul just yanked out and decided, hey, I'm going to create a new theology here. This is Paul saying something that he has already seen. God is in charge. Satan is God's servant. And somebody who commits a sin as heinous as this, not only was to be driven out of the church, but they were to deliver such a one to Satan. Now, these two kind of go arm in arm. The saved people, the people who are who are redeemed, who are the elect, Paul assumes those people are in the church. They're part of the church. When I say that, I don't mean bricks and mortar. I don't mean church building. I mean all of mankind is divided into unbelievers and the church, the ecclesia, the outcall, those that belong to the kurios, those who belong to the Lord. Those are the two groups. So you are either in Satan, which is the whole world, or you are in Christ. And there's no gray area, and there's nothing in the middle. You're one or the other. And you see that again all the way through the Bible. You're either children of darkness or you're children of light. From the very beginning, when God punished Satan, Adam and Eve, he separated the woman from Satan. He drove a division between them to get them away from each other. And he said that from that point forward, humanity was broken up into the seed of Satan or the seed of the woman. So God said it. I didn't make it up. All of humanity is divided between the seed of Satan or the seed of the woman. And the seed of the woman becomes the church. So you're in the church or you're in the world. You're in Christ or you're in Satan. That's the way it works. Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. He is referred to as the master of, of this world, this domain. Are you getting a feel for this? I'm just trying to drive home. There's only two groups. There's no third group. So if this man who had committed this heinous sin is cast out of the church, where does he end up? He ends up with Satan. He ends up in the world. You're either in the church or you're in the world. And so Paul could say, my judgment on this man is this. Put him out of the church. And then he's going to expound on why he has to be put out of the church. Put him out of the church and turn such a one over to Satan. But then Paul holds out this wonderful hope, knowing that it isn't up to Paul to judge anybody's eternal destiny, knowing that it's not up to him to announce God's judgment on anybody. He says, even this one, as terrible a sinner as he is, turn such a one over to Satan. Don't let him be part of the church, and maybe Christ will save his soul in the day that he returns. 
And I like that he held out that hope. That was all introduction. I mean, really, genuinely, that was all introduction. We're now going to read chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians. Now, in my introduction to 1 Corinthians, I mentioned that there is a very large Jewish community in Corinth. And when Paul is writing this letter, he is writing to an audience that is very familiar with Judaism and the practices of Judaism. And he makes reference throughout this letter to Judaistic practices. And he talks about keeping feasts and that kind of stuff, which would make no sense. He couldn't say that if the whole church was Gentile, because they would have no background in the Old Testament. They would have no background in things like keeping feasts or in the law or in Moses or any of that. And so he's writing to an audience that is largely Jewish, and you're going to see that come out here again. Because Paul says, there's a sin among you that isn't even named among the Gentiles, which is an interesting phrase if he's writing to a Gentile audience. But he says, among the Gentiles, among the unbelievers, among those who don't have covenant with God, among those who are not keeping the law, even they... Don't do what you're doing. Even they know better than for a man to take his father's wife. They even know how to draw the line right there. It is actually reported that there is immorality among you. And immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles. That someone has his father's wife. And you have become Arrogant. Now he's talking to the whole church and saying, here's someone in your midst, someone who's clearly sinful, someone who's living in outward debauchery, and what have you done about it? Nothing. And this word arrogant, as we mentioned last week, means you actually thought it didn't matter. You actually weren't concerned about God's reputation or the church's reputation or showing how you were different than the world. Instead, you were willing to just let this one continue in the church and continue in his practice of having his father's wife as his sex partner. And you have become arrogant. You have not mourned instead in order that the one who had done this deed might be removed from your midst. He says that here. He says it twice more in this, in this chapter. Remove such a one from your midst. Get such a person out. Why? He's going to say in a moment, because a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, we all know that phrase. We've all grown up with that phrase. Little leaven leavens the whole lump. I've heard that phrase applied to a great many things. Paul only applies it to purity within the church. Within the church, there needs to be a standard. Within the church, there needs to be a level of understanding that you actually do belong to the all-omnipotent master of time, space, and reality, that you do belong to God Almighty who made heaven and earth. You do belong to the absolute sovereign over everything, and he is nothing but righteousness and holiness, and therefore you need to reflect him. And if you don't reflect him, if you're a bad reflection of him, or if you're in rebellion against him, then you're not supposed to be in the church. 
because the very fact that the church allowed such a person to be in their midst colored the whole church. It made the whole church guilty. The whole church was arrogant and did not mourn. So Paul held them all accountable for this fellow who had had his father's wife. I would that he was removed from the church. Verse 3, for I, on my part, though I'm absent in body but present in spirit, I have already judged him who has so committed this. And I've judged him as though I were present in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, let's talk about that again. Uh, we, we've oftentimes said that when praying, we're to pray in Jesus' name. And far too often, people just tack that onto a prayer like it's an addendum, like, oh, in Jesus' name. It's not name that's important here. The name denotes authority. When somebody comes to your door and says, let me in, you have the right not to let them in. You have the right to say, this is my house, I decide who comes in. But if somebody knocks on your door and says, open up in the name of the law. Okay, they don't mean name of the law. They're, it's not like Ralph or George or, you know, it's, it's not, oh, sorry, George. Uh, not, it's, not, it's not a name, it's open up in the authority of the law. I am a, a duly deputized representative of the law of the land, and that law says you have to open. Well, that's completely different. You're going to open the door now because the name of the law is outside. Okay, whenever you see the name of Jesus Christ, don't think just name. You're not just saying his name, Jesus Far too often people say Jesus Christ like it's his first name and last name. You know, Jesus Christ. But it means in the authority of Jesus because you, by your own authority, by your own fleshly will and sinful proclivities, you don't have the right, you don't have the power, you don't have the authority to walk into God's presence. You don't have the right to just go, hey God, it's me. Let me ask you some stuff. But Jesus made it okay. Jesus said, you can now go pray to your father, and when you pray, pray in my authority, in my name. Okay, so now Paul is using the word the same way here. He says, for I on my part, though I'm absent in body, but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this as though I were present. In the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled, and I with you in spirit, and with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan. Okay, now the fact that he says that, I with you, you with me, as if I were actually there, we have the authority, the church has the authority of Jesus Christ and the power of Jesus Christ to tell such a person you can't continue doing this and being part of the church. In a moment, he's going to say, we probably won't get to it today, but he's going to say, if someone says they're a brother, but you find out that they're a liar, you find out they're swindling people, you find out they're not a good person, don't even eat with such a person. If they name the name of Christ, then they need to represent Christ in a way that is appropriate to Christ. 
So by the power, by the authority of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Let's pause there for just a moment and then we're going to talk about putting such a one out of the church and then we're done. We're really close to done. (laughs) You believe me. Okay, so... Are there any questions about that phrase now, deliver such a one to Satan? Yes, Conrad. The the first part of the uh, equation, which is throwing out of the church, seems to do violence to the Lord's predilection to elect. But the second part rescues you from that. But the second one rescues you from that, right? And says her adventurous soul is going to be saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So election is still in that verse all over the place. And Paul is so conscious of election that he will not judge that person. Because it's not up to him. And it's not up to you and it's not up to me and it's not up to anybody on the internet. Just had to throw that in. Any other questions or shall we continue now? We're good? Really? Everybody in this room has got it now? Oh, I'm happy. Okay, good. In my mind, this was the place where there were just going to be a ton of questions, but I'm glad that I belabored the point. Verse 6, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Your boasting is not good. How were they boasting? In what way were they boasting? Paul has said now you're arrogant and you're boasting, and your boasting is not good. Well, this is all part and parcel of the way that they were uh, conducting themselves as a church. That instead of rightly figuring out that this was an inappropriate action and this person should not be in their midst because his little leaven was going to cause the whole church to be affected. The fact that they hadn't done anything about it is a form of arrogance, a form of I know better than God does. I know better than the Bible does. I'll decide for myself what's appropriate. If I want to ordain practicing homosexuals into the ministry, I'm just going to do it. If I decide I'm going to kill my unborn child, I'm just going to do it. If I decide that we're going to have a church where there's lewd and lascivious activity and dancing going on, well, we're just going to do it. And if I want to have a church where drunkenness is allowed, then I'm just going to do it. Well, That's that boasting, that's that arrogance that says, I'm going to form a church after my opinion, after my likeness, and not after the likeness of God who decides what his church is about. So now look at the next phrase. Clean out the old leaven. Okay, hold on just a moment. Paul can't say that to Gentiles. Only Jews know about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Only they know that before the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they have to get all the leaven out of their house and out of the camp of Israel. Only Jews understand that unleavened bread reference. And so this is, again, evidence of why I say that Paul is writing to the Jewish converts who are in Corinth, who we know historically existed, and apparently the church that is in Corinth is an amalgam of both Jew and Gentile, In Rome, there was a Jewish church and a Gentile church. They were meeting in two different locations, 
and the letter to the Romans was written to both of them, bouncing back and forth. And I think that's what's happening here in the Corinthian letter. So he says, clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. There's your election again. In the mind of God, you are unleavened. Leaven became a type of sin in the Old Testament. The whole point of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to drive all the sin out of the camp of Israel. And so Jesus, having died, he being the bread of life, he being our Passover lamb, as Paul is going to say in a moment, he satisfied the typology of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so Paul could say, Clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. You are sinless. You are cleaned up. You are taken care of by Christ. Now, knowing that about yourself, live like it. This is why Paul could so frequently talk about the difference between the old man, the fleshly man, and the new man, the man that recognizes that Christ has saved them. And that's why he could say, put to death the old man and his deeds. Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are, in fact, unleavened. Then look at the next phrase. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sanctified. <laughs> okay. Now, that's a very Old Testament theological statement. You're unleavened because the Passover lamb was sacrificed. Well, those are very Old Testament phrases. You can't say that to a bunch of Gentiles. That's meaningless to a bunch of Gentiles. But the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread was the day of Passover. And that's the day that the Passover lamb for 1,400 years had been killed, all typology leading to Christ, all of that foreshadowing the one who actually threw the shadow, all leading you to the fact that Christ would be the Passover lamb. But Paul here, writing to the church, still makes these Old Testament references. For Christ, our Passover, also has been sanctified. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast. <laughs> what feast? The feast of Passover and unleavened bread. Let us, therefore, celebrate the feast, but in a different way. Let us go ahead and keep Passover. Christ is our Passover. Let's keep that feast of Passover, but let's do it in a new way. Very much like Christ sitting at the Lord's Supper and saying, with longing, I have longed to keep this feast with you. I have longed to keep this Passover with you. And then he changed their focus. Instead of remembering their deliverance out of Egypt, he said, as often as you do this, remember me. As often as you keep the Passover meal, remember me. As often, Paul says, as often as you drink this cup, the Passover cup, as often as you eat this bread, what bread? The unleavened bread of the Passover meal, then remember me. So he changed their focus. Well, Paul is doing the same thing, but he does say to this church of Jews and Gentiles, keep the feast. That's interesting to me. So he says... Let us therefore celebrate the feast, not with old leaven, not with the old law, not with the deliverance from Egypt, not with old covenant principles. 
nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness. Malice and wickedness is leaven. It is a type of sin. It is what has permeated this church. It is the little leaven that has leavened the whole lump. When you keep this feast, don't keep it with this in your midst. Instead, cast that out of your midst like unleavened people and keep the feast with a pure heart. So he says, not with the leaven of malice or wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And the only way you can keep a feast like that with sincerity and truth is if there's nothing in your midst that is an outward rebellion against God. This again is Paul's argument for why you would throw such a person out. I wrote you, verse 9, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world. If I said to you, stop associating with immoral people immediately, how many of you could go to work tomorrow? None. Nobody can do that. You go to the bank, you go to Food Lion, you go anywhere, you're going to bump into immoral people. If it's Food Lion, they're immoral and they can't make change. And so, just seeing if you were still listening. So Paul takes the time to say, I didn't say don't associate with immoral people in the world. The next phrase is, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. Because everywhere that you go in the world, you're going to see, you're going to associate with, you're going to interact with immoral people. So he says, I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and the swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, do not even eat with such a person. Okay, so Paul has just drawn a clear distinction. When you're dealing with the world, you just have to expect that the world is sinful, and that's the way it is. God knows. God understands that when you go to the bank, when you go to the store, when you go to your job, he knows that you're going to deal with sinful, immoral people. He gets that. But within the church, different rules. Within the church... If someone says, I'm a brother, I'm a brother in Christ, I'm saved like you are, but they're immoral, and then he lists all the different ways that they're immoral, they're cheats, or they're swindlers, or they're liars, if they're like that, not only do you put them out of the church, you don't even eat with such a person. Why? Because it's like giving tacit approval to their behavior. If you're saying, well, I don't like the way you're behaving, but let's get together for lunch. Well, then you're saying your behavior doesn't really matter that much. Jesus was very clear about what the steps are. The steps of church discipline are if you know that your brother is in sin, then you go to him privately. And if he won't hear you, then you go back with two or three witnesses. And if you won't hear the two or three witnesses, then you bring it up in front of the whole congregation, the whole church. Paul is perfectly in league with everything Jesus has taught 
And the church at Corinth is so laissez-faire about the fact that there are really immoral, sinful things going on that Paul is having to tell them, you need to clean up your act. You need to clean up the church. You need to point these people out individually and deal with the fact that they are living immoral lives. If they won't listen to you, you need to turn them over to Satan and perhaps Jesus will save them. He's going to say it one more time. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? If people are outside the church, if they're part of the world, it's not our job to change them. It's not my job to make the teller at the bank more moral. If she's not part of the church, I just said she arbitrarily, okay? You women settle down. If he's not part of the church, it's not my job to make him more moral. What have I to do with judging outsiders? But do you not judge those that are within the church? If somebody says they are in the church, part of the church, part of the body of Christ, part of the bride of Christ, then are we not to hold them accountable to their profession? Last phrase, for those who are outside, God judges. It's not your place to judge them. God judges them. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. And at that point, he's actually quoting from Deuteronomy 13.5. Even Israel had particular rules and laws that said, if there is somebody who is rebellious and immoral in the camp of Israel, drive them out. Don't let them be in the camp of Israel because they will affect the whole camp. And so Paul is saying, this isn't anything new. This is something that is long-term. This is part of God's judgment. If there's somebody in the church who is in outright immorality, drive such a person out. Let me say one last thing. I promise it's the last thing. Next to the last thing. <laughs> it's, it's probably two or three from last. The purpose of church discipline, which is really what this chapter is about, I mean, it doesn't get more disciplinary than turn such a one over to Satan. That sounds pretty disciplinary. The purpose of church discipline is always, always restoration. The purpose is to drive them back to fellowship with Christ. The ministry of Christianity is called the ministry of reconciliation. We are calling men and women, boys and girls, to be reconciled to their God. And so the purpose is never get out of my church and stay out. The purpose is be aware that you are a representative of Christ. You're wearing the name of Christ. You are saying that you belong to Christ. Now make sure that your actions are in league with your profession. And if it's not, then you can't be part of the church until your behavior changes. But I pray that your behavior changes. I pray that you'll come back and say... Okay, I get it. I'm wrong. I repent. I'm sorry. Well, if that's the case, this door is wide open. Because in the end, if you look around this room, all you're going to see is sinners. All you're going to find is other people who have been forgiven by grace and who are trying to live it out in a way that they represent Christ. And if you're rebellious, 
If you don't like that, then you got to go because you will influence the whole body because a little leaven will leaven the whole lump. And the whole lump, because we all love the church and we love each other and we love the fellowship and we love Christ and we love worshiping him, we as the body of Christ will drive somebody out who's affecting us, interrupting us, stopping us from worshiping God. You got it? Now, here's a hard question. Does anybody disagree? Because that's what the Bible says. It's hard teaching, but it's the right teaching. Any questions? As far as restoration, isn't it, what, what, isn't it the next book in 2 Corinthians where he has to tell them, put the guy in? Yeah. And Paul himself, when you look at even the relationship between him and Barnabas and John Mark, they were going to take John Mark with them on a missionary journey, and then they decided not to take him, and he was trouble, and he, Barnabas ended up taking him. And then later Paul says, send John Mark to me because he's useful for me. Okay, well, what happened? Restoration. So you see examples of that all the way through the Bible. And that's always our goal. My goal is never, 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 look, I told you it was next to last. Okay. If you have any concept of what God's judgment and hell and damnation and worm never sleeps and fires never quenched and lake of fire and if you have any concept of what all that is you couldn't wish that on anybody you would always hope for restitution restoration and reconciliation you would always hope that before this person left the planet they'd be reconciled to their God. Always. Right? right? Am I alone up here? Because that would have been a good place for a hearty amen. But, but apparently you all are haters. <laughs> so, all right. Need to let you go. Okay, I hope you learned something from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Yes, sir, Bill? Uh, I have a question there. Yeah. sinners that we can't bring them in perfect we have to bring them in with their imperfections sure but and, but I'm, I'm, I'm having difficulty with that from a standpoint of I see that we are allowing too much in without confrontation without education without bringing them letting them know that those things really aren't acceptable right come in, sit, and listen, but we can't bring you into the church with that way. Yeah. Uh, that's a really, really common problem because it's sort of a, a social problem within the church. Churches are trying to grow, and the church growth movement allows too much of this sin and depravity into the church just to get numbers, just to put people in seats. And I would rather have a Bible-believing, dedicated small group rather than a large, out-of-control group. Because we've got Steve, and he's hard enough to control. 
and so, yeah. And so, really, all the way in Texas, your reputation precedes you. Um, yeah, so I believe that, yes, the church has to have a standard, and they have to teach Christ diligently. Not only will that drive out the goats, but it will feed the sheep. And if there's no standard, then I don't think you can rightly call yourself a Bible church, a biblical church. Now, I'm sorry if I just insulted the church you're going to, but, but there has to be a standard. Yeah. Now, now, at the same time, I believe in evangelism. We go out, we preach the good news to people. And if people hear it and respond to it and come into our church, warts and all, that's great. Welcome. Because the Holy Spirit of God will get a hold of you and change you. Yeah, if you're in the church, the Spirit of God will change you. But if somebody claims to be in the church, like we just read, they're in the church, they're in the body of Christ, and there's no change, there's no conviction of their behavior, well, now you've got somebody who's not really, I would say, spirit-filled. Make sense? Yeah. Anything else? We have two of the Internet people with us, so we'll let them say goodbye, too. But say goodbye to the Internet people. Thank you for listening to this Sunday morning message from Grace Christian Assembly. Please visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And join us next time when we gather around the Word and study God's sovereign grace.